Hello and thanks for watching. My name is Michael Brock. I'm the senior pastor here at Third Presbyterian Church. Third Pres has been a part of the downtown Birmingham community since 1884, and we still today hold to the historic, classic Christian faith. We're glad you've been watching, but we would love to have you join us one Sunday in person. Please see our website for our Sunday morning service times, and I hope to meet you soon. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them with me to Romans chapter 2. That's page number 940 in your pew Bibles. 940 in your pew Bibles, Romans chapter 2. And while you're turning there, the children, as they know well, are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson. We're continuing a sermon series through the book of Romans and most recently have been considering the wrath of God, which is what we see uh, very clearly in the latter part of chapter one. And so now we move from the wrath of God to the judgment of God. So you're getting a lot of, in a sense, reality, truth, bad news that is laying the groundwork for the good news that we will encounter, Lord willing, in weeks ahead. In chapter 1, Paul talks about the gospel. And he says that he's very eager to preach the gospel to the Christians who are in Rome. And he says it's because it's the power of God for salvation. And then he goes into talking about why man needs this gospel, why man needs salvation. And so the rest of chapter 1 then is Paul describing man's sinfulness and how God's wrath is expressed in, in God giving man over to his sins. So his wrath is expressed in uh, man being free in a sense, unrestrained, to sin more and more and more. Now, there through uh, chapter 1, he's been writing in the third person. But here, in chapter 2, he suddenly shifts. And he begins writing to the, in the second person and addresses... There's some debate about whether he's addressing Jews. Certainly, beginning in verse 17, he's clearly addressing Jews. Uh, he's at least addressing pagan moralists. Which you might think, oh, how can you be a pagan moralist? Uh, just meaning non, in this category, non-Jew or non-Christian, uh, but moral person in a sense. And he, so he begins to talk about them. Either way, whether it's, he's really speaking specifically to the Jews or, again, to the pagan moralist, either way he is speaking to uh, spiritually privileged but complacent people. People who think that because... They've had revelation, they have knowledge, they're civil, they're educated, they're informed, they're, they're somewhat moral, then they have all these uh, guarantees of being in a right relationship with God. These to whom he was speaking in chapter 1, the ones in chapter 2 now to whom he's speaking, uh, they, would, they would have enjoyed seeing their sins exposed. They would have been very smug, very self-righteous, and, and, uh, and very confident in who they were. And so that's why chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with the word, therefore. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. And again, that could be O Jew or pagan moralist. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Lord, please open our eyes during these few moments together that we might behold wonderful things from this Your Word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We don't say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. We have some sort of affirmation of faith every Sunday. Every other week, we will say the Apostles' Creed. And then on those other off weeks, we work through a little rotation of various affirmations of faith. But you said it this morning. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. You know, you hear a lot of verses in Reformed and Presbyterian churches about salvation by grace and praise the Lord for that. That's good and right and proper. But this morning's sermon is one that you maybe haven't ever heard before or at least you don't hear very often about the judgment of God. Do we really believe that when we say it in the Apostles' Creed that He will come to judge the living and the dead? You know, many of us as Christians will will tend to think that the only ones who are judged are those who don't know Christ. That Jesus received the judgment that Christians deserve so that they aren't judged. And in a sense, that is very true, of course. But if there was no judgment for Christians, why does Paul say it here in Romans chapter 2? Why does he repeat it in Romans chapter 14 and in many other places that we'll look at this morning? The reality is that salvation is by grace through faith But judgment is by works. And that sounds, of course, uh, strange to Protestant, Reformed, Presbyterian ears. And that's unfortunate that we so emphasize salvation by grace and faith that we, for all practical purpose, forget about the place of works and good deeds in the lives, in our lives. And we, we very much need a renewed appreciation for this doctrine of judgment according to works. So let me try to create that appreciation with three points. First of all, the extent of judgment. The extent of judgment. Very simply, 
all will be judged. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, again, this here is either the Jew or at least it's the moral uh, pagan. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? He will render, it says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. And then in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. And then verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Everyone, every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. All of us, even as Christians, will have our sins revealed. And so when we say in the Apostles' Creed that He will come again to judge the living and the dead, we're not saying that only non-Christians are judged. No, all men will stand before the judgment seat of God. So you see it here, Paul again in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 and 11 and 12. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? Again, Paul's talking to Christians here. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat then. Uh, so then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Our deeds done in the flesh will be revealed. Our good deeds as well as our sins. Now, if you're in Christ, those sins will be revealed as pardoned. Pardoned sins. They will be covered. They will be forgiven. But they will be revealed nonetheless. I was thinking about it. You know, sometimes nowadays uh, in Microsoft Word or Google Docs or whatever, you know, word processing software you use, you can write a paper and, a, and sort of in a, in a sort of a gray, gray scale um, color uh, light that you can sort of read through. It'll say going diagonally draft. You know, it, it lets you know, uh, it, it in a sense tells you what's going on with that paper. That's the way it will be for us and as Christians, or those of us who are in Christ, is they, our sins will be in a sense revealed, but it will be pardoned. It'll, be, it'll say pardoned or covered or forgiven. But we all experience that. We will all, we will all have that and stand before the judgment seat of God. None are exempt. That's the extent of the judgment. Now let's think secondly about the basis of judgment. The basis, and this is the way John Stott says it, the basis of God's righteous judgment will be what we have done. The basis of God's righteous judgment will be what we have done. Verse 6 reads, He will render to each one according to his works. And then in verse 7, he states what the works are. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will, uh, there will be wrath and fury. The basis of God's judgment, God's righteous judgment, will be what we have done. A couple reasons for that. 
You might, you would maybe think of some others, but there, there are at least a, a two that I want to mention this morning. One, Judgment Day is a day of revelation. It's a, it's a day of unveiling. God's judgment will be seen. Uh, it is, in a sense, a public display. God's judgment will be on display publicly. A public verdict will be given. A public sentence will be passed. And all of that requires a, a public and verifiable, uh, requires public and, and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence available will be our works. This revelation, uh, it is, like I said, it's a revealing, and it, and, and it reveals in that sense, it reveals the, the righteous judgment of God. It vindicates God. Verse 5 mentions that. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The judgment of God will be revealed to be right, perfect, holy, true, just on that day. And in that sense, the final judgment is really more about the vindication of God than it is about true believers having their lives vindicated. It's really about our triune God. This judgment of God... It won't be based upon our profession or what we have said, but upon our works. Matthew chapter 7, it reads in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, someone, a man will say, I love my wife. And, of course, the question is, well, what's the evidence? Let's examine the evidence. Same thing. I'm a Christian. Well, let's examine the evidence. It, that, that's been said before. You've probably heard it. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's the judgment of God. This judgment day is a day of revelation. And second, our works reveal the state of our hearts. Our works reveal the state of our hearts. The justification inevitably, inevitably leads to the transformation of a life. In other words, a heart that is changed, a heart that is made right with God, when we are united to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, we're renewed in the inner man, that will result in a change of our life. It will result in a display of obedience in our lives. Again, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You know, sometimes people will <clears throat> say that Paul and, and James were saying contradictory things one to another. Uh, and But Paul and, and James are, are clearly on the same uh, 
they're, they're clearly on the, in the same uh, song sheet all the time, but it's, it's definitely that's seen here because James in James chapter two writes, "What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Save him?" And then verse seventeen. So also. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not a real faith. It's not a true faith if it doesn't produce works in our lives. But someone will say, verse 18, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the idea here. If my life is not characterized by righteousness, and good works, then I'm not a Christian. I don't have that new heart. I don't have the Holy Spirit. I don't have true faith. It's been said this way, and some of you would have heard, heard this, I'm sure. We are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that stays alone. Meaning that faith brings with it, it produces alongside it, works. And that's why Paul can say here that eternal life is for those who are righteous and divine wrath is for those who are not righteous. Our works reveal the righteousness of God and our works reveal the state of our heart. And then third, the goal of judgment. So we've seen the extent of judgment and the basis of judgment. Now let's think about the goal of judgment. And I'll just give you one word for the goal. Holiness. Holiness. To those, again, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every, every human being who does evil. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Only the good go to heaven. Only the holy will see the smile of God for all of eternity. And the temptation as a preacher is to soften this and to tell you not to worry about your good works because what really matters is the condition of your heart. <clears throat> and, and, there is, and that is true in many ways. But one of the problems with that, without ever hearing a sermon on the importance of good works, our Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole chapter on good works. <clears throat> without, ever, without you hearing sermons about the place of good works, what happens is it will inevitably lead to complacency. And, and two, that's, that's not even really what the Bible does. I mean, the Bible doesn't soften this doctrine of judgment by works. <clears throat> it yells at us. It screams at us page after page in Scripture to remember that we will be judged according to what we have done. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. 
Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. John 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, each one of them, according to what they had done. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness. <clears throat> holiness is the goal. Now I said in, in the beginning here, this, this third point, um, that the goal of judgment is holiness. I really could have used the word salvation. The, the goal of salvation is holiness. And frankly... There'll be some pushback on that idea, even in uh, even in conservative evangelical uh, church. Um, people will say, "Well, isn't isn't the goal of salvation forgiveness and reuniting God and man?" As a matter of fact, I, uh, there's one quote I was familiar with, and so I, I saw it on the internet, attributed to both um, Leonard Ravenhill and Robbie Zacharias. So I don't know who who said it, but. Uh, the quote is this, Jesus didn't come to make pad, bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Well, he certainly did come to make dead people alive. But what I'm preaching this morning is that people who are alive in Christ will become good people. <laughs> I mean, making dead people alive is, is, is a, certainly a part of it. But what I'm saying is that it's not ultimate. It's penultimate in a sense. The ultimate goal is not forgiveness, but holiness. It's not deliverance from, not only deliverance from guilt, but goodness of life. And I think this is one of the reasons why Paul comes to justification or forgiveness first here in the book of Romans. But then we'll move on, Lord willing, we'll see in weeks, uh, to the lifestyle of one who believes in Jesus and how his life will change. And it's, it's not seen just here in Romans. In Ephesians chapter 1, what does Paul say? He, he, the way he puts it in Ephesians 1, we were chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ. Not finally to be forgiven, although we thank God for that forgiveness. But this is the way it's phrased in Ephesians 1, to be made holy. We were chosen before the foundation of the world to be good and to do good. The, the way Paul will say it in, towards the end of uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 is we were predestined, meaning God set his, his heart and His saving intentions on us so that we would be conformed to the image of the Son of God. The whole purpose of God in salvation is to bring us to live a life pleasing to Him. In Ephesians 2... The way Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. 
in Titus chapter 2, we, we get the same sort of thing. Jesus Christ gave, uh, gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are, ve- that are His very own eager to do what is good. So the great salvation of God which is obtained by grace through faith in Christ Jesus has as its great and final end or object to make people good. To make us holy. It's, it's renovation of life. Transformation uh, from bad living to good living. And of course, that's defined by Scripture, bad and good. Just not whatever we kind of dream up to be bad and good. But that is the great work of God's salvation, the great purpose of God's saving work. Uh, I, one, one tweet I saw from Tim Keller, he, he said it this way, Jesus didn't die for us because we were lovely. He died to make us lovely. Salvation is designed to make us good people who love one another. And do His will. And do it day after day. And I, I'm really preaching to myself in so many ways. This, I mean, the last week, two weeks kind of thinking about this has been just wonderful for my own soul. And so I'm, I'm, I have begged the Lord to allow it to come and impact you the way it has me the, the last couple of weeks. Because there has been just in my own soul even a renewed... Uh, zeal for for the Lord and and carefulness with with uh, a lot of things that I use in the confession of sin this morning. You know, innuendo and just you know the way we fill our minds with junk on the internet, just waste our time and just, you know, there's so much more sensitivity in my own life. And so and and it goes back to that I've been studying this the last two weeks and thinking hard about it and praying, Lord, please don't let it wane. I want it. To, I want it to stay there. This is this new inspiration or you know inspired way of living. Anyway, that wasn't in my notes. When we allow our we when we allow our minds and hearts to stop at forgiveness, as if as if that was the end. Forgiveness were the great thing, the main thing. We're just not honoring God. He didn't save us simply to get us out of the jam that we were in. He saves us to make us the people that we ought to be. Um, one article put it this way. He saved us to make us people. It would be an honor to Him to have associated with Him and to be in fellowship with Him. Robert Rayburn puts it this way. God is our Heavenly Father and He loves us as our Heavenly Father. And what does a good father want for his children but that they should grow up to be good? He wants us to be people whose lives are dominated by love for God and love for man, by honesty, faithfulness, and by selflessness. And He knows, as any father does, that only that life will truly satisfy us in the end. Our Father wants for us the best, and the best is for us to be like His Son. It 
some of you have, have followed different Bible reading programs, and one of one of the most well known, I think, and most often used is the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading program. Or some some of you have used that. Uh, he was a 19th century Scottish uh, pastor, <clears throat> and he preached powerful s- sermons on uh, the the forgiveness of sinners by by God's free grace and salvation by faith alone and, and righteousness imputed to us. Uh, and he knew his Bible well. And he knew it well enough to describe this sanctification and renewal of our lives that I'm, that I'm really talking about here. Uh, he called it the better half of salvation. And here in Romans... The salvation that Paul is going to describe, Lord willing, we'll get to and see more and more. Uh, He's going to describe it as the solution to our great problem uh, as sinners before a holy God. It begins with forgiveness and acceptance with God, but it finishes with the transformation of life. What we have to get to is a good life. An obedient life. A life of service to God. And when we get there, we will say, thank you, God, for doing that work in my life. He gets all the credit. And Lord willing, I'll talk more about that kind of thing next week. But at the last judgment, you and I will have to have been good. You and I will have to have lived a righteous life. We will have to have been forgiven, yes, 100% to be sure. But that is not what's going to be in the balance of the last judgment. It's our lives. It's what we have done. It's how we've lived. And we won't have been saved if we didn't live that righteous life. Thanks be to God that when we are united to Christ, we get that seed that then, as it's nourished through prayer and the Word, fellowship, worship, uh, sacraments, it, it grows, it, uh, it blossoms, and it bears fruit of beautiful works that glorify and honor God and are good for our soul. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, it's good for us to really have to put on our thinking cap and consider um, words and phrases from Scripture that sometimes we just kind of gloss over or move past quickly. And I pray that these truths from Romans chapter 2 and from the other verses that I mentioned and um, James 2 and on and on, Lord, I pray that these truths would would saturate our minds and compel us to consider the way we live our lives. And because of great love for You, the fact that You would save sinners, Lord, let it impact us in such a way that we would live changed lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our hymn of response as we stand to sing here at the end of our service is rise up O church of god let's stand together and sing <clears throat>